Empire. Welcome to Making the Case Crimes Against Kids. In this series, we dig deep into and help prevent the worst of the worst criminal behavior, crimes against children. It's a tough subject, and you're going to hear and learn about the world of crimes against kids from our expert guests. Some are survivors of crimes themselves, others are law enforcement, and many are advocates for crime prevention and legislative change. I'm Avery Mann, and I spent 16 years fighting crime with the hit Fox TV show, America's Most Wanted, and five years at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Crimes are being committed every minute of every day, and law enforcement just doesn't have the resources or the time to solve every case. Often, children are victims, and that's where my company comes in. SOS 360 Inc. provides expert training to families, schools, their PTAs, and camps on how to help detect who the bad guys are so they never get hired and never get to work around kids. What can you do right now to keep yourself, your loved ones, and our kids safer? That's next on Making the Case, Crimes Against Kids. As a teenager attending college, my next guest thought that her life was going great. She came from a really nice family in Northern California, was close with her younger brother, who she felt protective of, and had a great relationship with her parents. Then one day in 2001, she was approached at a mall and complimented on her makeup. She was asked if she had ever considered being a professional makeup artist, which could give her opportunities to travel the country, showcasing her skills at beauty pageants and other events. It seemed like a great idea, but after applying and interviewing for what she thought would be a dream job, instead, she was taken at gunpoint, assaulted, and became a sex trafficking victim for nearly a year before being rescued. Her story is one of hope and not of remaining a victim, but being a survivor. Natasha Herzig is my guest today. Thanks so much for being on my show, Natasha, and welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, just before we get started and get deeper into the conversation, I just wanted to give a quick content warning to our listeners today that we're dealing with the subject of sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, and some of the discussion may use language or descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing. Natasha, tell us about who you were before 2001. What were your plans as you started college when you were 18? Well, I think as most 18 year olds, I was on a journey of self-discovery, trying to find myself um, due to having such a sheltered childhood and having such a good life uh, with that. I think, you know, you always dream of getting married, having children, having a career, just living your life. And unfortunately, uh, I think due to the fact that when you're 18, you think you know everything, you yeah. can make some detrimental uh, decisions. One day you were in a mall and I think you were with a friend and you were approached by a woman. What happened when, when, when that occurred? And, you know, were you wary? Were you skeptical? What was that like? So again, at 18, I'm at the mall. She's like, have you ever been in the fashion industry? I love your makeup. You're pretty. Uh just all things that I think at 18, I was dismissive of her. I didn't feel like anything was good or bad. I just felt like, leave me alone. You know, why are you talking to me? Let me finish shopping. And she just handed me her card and said, you know, if you're ever interested, you can go ahead and uh, give me a call. And 
that's kind of how it happened. After a couple weeks, I saw her card, you know, on my dresser and just decided to call and, you know, that what the heck, what can happen type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So she had a legitimate business card. And I mean, this was a mall that was close to you, right? I mean, you were familiar with this. This wasn't in some random place that you'd never been before. No, no, no. It was I'm very familiar with that mall. And and had you seen this woman talking to anyone else or did she just kind of like approach you out of nowhere? You know, I really wasn't paying attention. I, you know, just was shopping and doing my thing. And somebody giving me a compliment when I was 18 really meant, didn't mean anything to me. So you see the card a couple of weeks later, you know, it's at your place and you go through an interview and then you went and had a meeting at a restaurant. Now, this was a follow-up interview to your to your first interviews. And you were supposedly doing the final interview, right? When I reached out to her and said, hey, I'm just interested in what this is all about, I went and had an interview with an owner of a company with the mail that she that I ended up having the interview with. And I remember him telling me, you know, when I said he said, fill out this application, I said, I've never had a job before. He goes, That's okay, give me the information of Mm -hmm. all your closest friends and family. Hmm. So that's what I did. And then as I was leaving, he said, you know, a lot of people are wanting this job. You'll be lucky to, to be chosen. So looking back, of course, at that point, I'm like, I'm like, I'll be, you know, I'll be lucky to be chosen. I hope they choose me now. Um, so when they, uh, of course. And, and so when they ended up calling me saying, we just have to go, you've got the job. We're going to, we have to go over uh, some last minute details. That's when I met them at the restaurant. And I mean, I know when I was a teenager, you know, of course I did my own thing, but big, big things that um, I was going to do, like if I was going to apply for a job or something like that, I would talk to my parents. Did you tell your parents at all that you were going to be doing this, 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 you know, potential traveling fashion industry job? Given that I come from, you know, a a family and and just like a, a surrounding of being at a private school, everyone going off to college and being successful, you really didn't get that choice. You were going to college. And Mm -hmm. when I initially brought it up, of course, I went to my mom first because moms are easier and then they help you convince dad. And so I went to my mom and then, of course, I tell my dad and he's like, absolutely not. And at the end of the day, I used the line that most 18-year-olds use. I'm 18 and you can't tell me Mm -hmm. what to do. So you go to this final interview and you described a feeling of being un- uncomfortable. What, what happened in that interview? As I was being my 18-year-old excited self, I'm asking all these questions. Where are we going? Where's, where's going to be the first place I go to travel to? What are we doing? I, I'm just filled with excitement. And I noticed that there's just this coldness and mm-hmm. he the guy's really not even talking and she's being very short and i feel like the whole the the energy just completely shifted and something just told me something is not right and you know my being 18 i, I didn't even know where to go with something like that feeling that way because i had never mm-hmm. truly felt that way before where all of a sudden something tells you this is something's not right and you're just like okay so what do i do now then so i 
said I was cold and that I needed to go get my jacket out of the car. They just kind of looked at me and in my mind, I'm like, I am driving off at this point. You weren't in some weird office building somewhere in some office park. I mean, you were in a legitimate restaurant with other people around too, right? Yes, yes. And so as I step outside and I'm walking outside and I'm, you know, go to step off the curb to get into my car, a car pulls up and I get thrown into the car from the back seat. At that moment, did you think that there was any connection between the people who were sitting in that restaurant supposedly interviewing you and these people who grabbed you? Absolutely not. I, I, I cannot even begin to explain what I thought was, was going on. I mean, to think of a connection in any way in those moments, I, I mean, to, to even think that there was forced prostitution, not even using the word sex trafficking, mm -hmm. when, when this happened to me would have never crossed my mind. I thought they had just randomly taken me and they were going to kill me. So I'm screaming, you know, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. There's nothing else going on in my mind thinking I'm about to be a sex slave. I'm thinking somebody just took me off the street and I've been kidnapped and they're going to take me somewhere and kill me. And and you, I mean, up to that point, you had a, you were living a great life. I mean, you were a cheerleader, you were on swim team, you were at a private school. Had you even heard the terms human trafficking, sex trafficking? Were those even part of you, your knowledge at, no. that, at that point? No, absolutely not. I, everything about my life would have never been exposed to something like that. There would be no reason to have me be exposed to anything like that. So again, in my mind, the only thing you know as a, as a child is somebody's taken me and they're going to kill me. That's what you think. I can see where you're, you're coming from because unless, unless you were maybe watching specific TV shows about crime, you wouldn't even think that this, this kind of thing exists. Uh, but, you know, you've talked about um, your experience and, you know, people can't believe the, the things that traffickers do to terrify their victims. And, and your trafficker, um, we'll talk about a more spider, he drove you around at that point and showed you your family home and where your brother went to school. What, what, was, what, was, what was that for? What was going on at that moment when he was doing that? So what had happened was, is after being um, held in a, in a room with no clothes and raped time and time again and being fed sandwiches and soup, um, I was taken um, and introduced to a girl that is known as, as the bottom bitch, which I know in the criminal world, in the square world, that doesn't make sense. Why would the bottom be the top? But that's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he had her explain to me what I'd be doing. And they both made me feel like I would be going home if I just did this one thing. So he told her, get her, get, uh, get her cleaned up, which get me cleaned up and, and I'm going to take her. So they base, they just made me believe that if I went and had sex with this stranger, that I would be able to go home. So after he drove me to go have sex with this stranger, I got back in the car with him and I, I said, do I get to go home now? And he looked at me and he said, bitch, you're never going home. So in those moments, I decided I needed to try to run away. So as he drove me back to the house that I was being kept in, I'm looking at all these girls and I'm like, they're in the same situation. So I asked one of the girls, would you, do you want to run away with me tonight? And I, she said, no. So I'm being kept in this room. All of a sudden the bottom 
the bottom bitch, she comes in and says, he wants to talk to you. And she hands me the phone and he says, hey, I hear you want to go home. Hmm. And I said, yes. And he says, you know what? This isn't, this isn't for you. We can see that. We're going to take you home. So I get in the car thinking that we're going home. And that was really the first time the things that proceeded after that he did not take me home. I realized that as we were driving and the things I saw, um, when you he weren't took even in, that far from your home, right? I mean, no, less than two you were hours. Very, very, very close. Yes. Less than two hours. So I realized we were not going towards where I lived and, um, you know, out of nowhere, his hand reaches across the center console and he is just able to strangle me unconscious with one hand and screaming at me. He's screaming, you want to, you want to go home. You want to go home. You're never going home and, and all this stuff. And then I wake up to being on the ground, getting kicked and in my face and my back. And then I, I pass out again. And when I wake back up, I'm in the middle of nowhere by myself and I, I can't feel my legs. And so I'm literally crawling in a forest and all of a sudden I see this car coming towards me. And as it gets closer, I realize that it's him oh and he gets God. out, he gets out and he picks me up like a fireman, like pick me up because I could not stand up because he had hurt me so bad that he lays me in the back and he tells me, do you want to go home? And I said, no. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, I had some other things happen to me. And then he would take me to go stalk my brother when he was in school. And he would tell me how easy it would be for, for him to kill my family. And it would be my fault if I don't follow the rules. I mean, I can't even imagine how scary that would be to be showing you your family. You were tricked initially into giving all this information where you lived. They find out this information and they they just use it against you. So now you're in a situation where you've been horribly beaten. You've been treated like absolute crap. And they're expecting that you're going to be living this life of being forced into prostitution. Were there other things that you were told that you were going to have to do as well? In regards to just, you know, following the rules. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he would make us listen to music and watch DVDs on how to be what's called, you know, be in the game. And you have to learn all these rules that you are to keep your head down when there's another African-American man in the room. You are not to make eye contact. There's a seniority in the way that you even sit in the car, how wherever you sit down in, in, a, in a restaurant, everything has a rule to it and a reason to it. There is no freedom even down to which when and where and what you're going to eat. So you are making zero choices for yourself. It's hard to believe that there was a, an actual DVD that was um, being shown to you about rules. It, it almost seems that in some ways it was extremely organized and they were very meticulous about exactly how everything goes from recruitment to physical and sexual violence to getting the, the, the Johns, the customers. You, you've mentioned some other people. How many other young women were in your group of, of victims and were you always kept together as a group? It would change, the numbers would change um, depending on what 
what the circumstance was. Um, at one point, I know the most he had was 13 while I was there. He had 13, um, 13, 13, girls, 13 women. Yes. Um, from he had a condo, then he had the house that we were being kept in. And then there was a third house in a different location. So he had three locations where he was housing girls. You know, you can't have 13 girls in a car going to appointments. Yeah. So the girls that had been there the longest, they were kind of in charge of all that. Um, Shiva, his bot, his bottom bitch, his basically his girlfriend, she was in charge of all the new girls. And so she took all, all the appointments, made all the appointments. And, you know, we were, we were on the internet and you were able to purchase time with us from, uh, seeing us advertised on the internet. I know that you were, you were also forced to recruit others. You were telling me before the show a little bit about that. How does that work with, with, with the bottom bitch, this, this person, Shiva? And I, and, and tell us about how, how you felt when you had to actually go out and do to others what was done to you. It's very difficult to really explain this and I, and I will need to explain it in a way that really will help the general public understand this. You know, when I do speaking engagements, I discuss co-conspirator or victim. Yeah. And that is because what ends up happening is you are so brainwashed that for me, the, the, what I call the turning point, when he would lose a girl to another trafficker, another pimp, it's called choosing up. So he chose up, she chose up this girl and we'll call her, we'll call her Jada. And Jada chose another pimp and you must pay that pimp roses and money to say, Hey, your girl chose up on me. So it's, it's a, it's a game. Everything has a rule. Like I said, everything has mm -hmm. a rule and that is the rule. So when Jada chose up, we, I was with Shiva, another girl and myself at our, at an outlaw, an outcall location where we would meet our clients and Shiva was going into this outcall location and this girl, Nadia and I were sitting in the car and we saw Jada pull up and her trafficker pulled up behind us, dropped her off. I got out of the car and I, I, I started beating her ass. And as I was beating in the parking lot, her pimp came over and started beating mine but I didn't care. And I will never forget that moment when I walked back to the car and Nadia hands me the phone and says, daddy wants to talk to you. And spider, I will spider also yes, known as dad. Yes. Yes. I will. Those moments I could hear him smiling through the phone and how proud I made him. Mm -hmm. And I did it without, being prompted. I did it without thinking about it. I did it out of loyalty to the game and to him. Just a whole culture that I don't think people really understand exists, but you're describing it in such detail um, that it, it's really unbelievable to hear. Because it's, it's the truth. And, and he would drive around with me on the track when we were trying to find girls and he'd be like, the cops aren't going to mess with me. I've got a snow bunny. And what does that mean? So I'm a white girl because I was just this all American looking girl. I was mm -hmm. not a threat to other girls. So I was really able to recruit girls without them questioning. Maybe I seem bad or, you know, they think I'm lying. I, I mean, 
you know, I could recruit anybody to this day. That's the problem with people having a mindset that the predator, the bad guy is the guy roaming the streets that looks scary in the one window van. It's not like that. And that made him so successful at it. I know that so many uh, kidnapping victims who I've talked to who have had interaction with people that they that could potentially save them, especially law enforcement, have talked about just how you you wouldn't even approach. And you're you're saying that you know when you would be on the track, there would be cops there, and your pimp didn't care, did he? He just thought, no, I'm 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 getting away with this. No one's messing with me. Because we're hidden in plain sight for, for everything. We'd go out to eat. We'd get on a plane. We travel just like everyone else does. We're hidden in plain sight. And that's what makes it so difficult for people to understand. Why didn't you just run away? Because I didn't even know that was an option. I, I, I knew, you know, he would tell us, you know, you're committing a crime as well. So if you go to the police, you're going to jail too, because prostitution is illegal. And I would be able to recruit these girls. I, I, I learned by the master how to manipulate. I see you you see the weak link in a group of girls. You see someone whose parents are too too strict and too sheltering. You offer them a way out. People who don't have a family, you offer to be their family. Girls who want the high life with the clubs and the bottle service, we offer the limo and the bottle service. So they would then look at me when they realized they were tricked and they would say, "Why did you trick me?" And in my mind, I would, t- I would tell them, I said, nobody helped me. Why would I help you? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's, and that's when, when you're talking about being a, a victim or co-conspirator, that's exactly what you're referring to is when no one helped you and, and you are now you're stuck, you're stuck in the game. You're stuck in the life. You're surviving. Like I, I, I'm not worried about tonight. I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about how I'm going to make sure I'm still alive and breathing within the next hour. So I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do because it's either going to be you or me and it's not going to be me. So you have to make those tough decisions. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Natasha will talk about how controlled her life was by her trafficker, the abusive ways that he maintained control of her and how nearly impossible it was to escape. Stay with us. We're back, and my guest today is Natasha Herzig, a thriving survivor of sex trafficking who's sharing real details about the life, the game, as it's called, by those who know about it. And Natasha is talking to me today about how she eventually was able to get out alive. Once again, just a quick content warning that we're talking about human trafficking, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, so listeners should be aware that some of the content may be disturbing. Natasha, how were you and the other girls advertised? We were advertised online using all different sorts of websites um, and also even just by uh, in-person connections. If we would be sent to conferences uh, and events all over the country so that like we what? would- like, su- like Super Bowls, like big sporting oh, events? Yes. Yes. So large sporting events, um, the Microsoft conferences, we did a couple in Vegas, the big ones that are like in January and, um, it's parties 
that uh, people would have large parties. That's the way they were able to get us is they looked at Spider like he was a celebrity with all these girls and, you know, people wanted to be a part of it. And how would you, like, if you were going to a party, um, would um, Spider arrange to, to bring you there or did you, did you just know where to go in order to be able to access the clients that you needed to, to bring him back the money? It would depend. If these were super large ones with celebrities and no well-known people, um, Spider would just fit right in because he had the jewelry, the, mm -hmm. you know, he's driving um, a Lamborghini, a uh, Rolls Royce, a you know, just all your really, really nice cars. He had all your designer, everything. He's keeping us in a million dollar sub suburb, suburban home where there's all these families around us. Um, you know, it's, he would go because people would literally want to be a part of whoever they thought he was. And so celebrities would want to be around him and all these beautiful women that he had with him, right? Yes. Absolutely. So, so you're interacting with celebrities all the time. Did you think that they had any clue about what was really going on and who you were and that you were not there on your own accord? My opinion on this is that I think people know, they just don't know to the extent of what it truly uh, is. I think they think, oh, that's, you know, there's all these girls they're with him and he's pimping them out but it was he was really good at making people believe that we were we were part of this empire and we got some of what we were doing every night we would have to meet that quota and mm -hmm. if you didn't meet that quota yeah. you did not come home so you worked until you met that quota there was no hey take 20% for yourself natasha Mm -hmm. It was a hundred percent, make that quota, give him all your money. When you needed clothes, you had to ask him and tell him, I need, I need a shirt or I yeah. need panties. There, there was no, Hey, I'm going to the store. So you were, I mean, you were literally scared shitless that if you didn't come home with the amount of money that he expected that your life would end. He didn't have to scare me. He put me in a really terrible situation. We were considered working off the internet. You're considered what's called a red carpet hoe. So we're your high class escorts and the track girls, th those are the girls given blow jobs, having sex for 60 bucks and 60 bucks is a lot. So to think you're going to meet a $2,000, $3,000 quota yeah. working the track. Yeah. The so track meaning the street for our listeners. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it it wasn't going to happen for days upon days. So when when I got when when I got in trouble for not doing what I was supposed to be doing, that was my punishment. He put me on the track, and this I, I don't even know how long I was out there, but I had made not a lot of money. And he was watching me in his car, and this car pulled up and offered me like three hundred dollars to have sex with him. And, and that was like, in my mind, I didn't care about anything but making this money because I'm never going to make two to three grand this night. And I get in the car with him and he takes me back to his house and he says, can you get in the bathtub? And the bathtub was filled with ice and I could hear him 
cre- the floor's creaking as he walked back and forth and he, he, he was walking back and forth and I'm sitting in this bathtub full of ice, like what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And he comes in naked and takes the shower curtain, the plastic and tries to suffocate me with it. Oh and I start scratching and biting. And because, uh, his genitals are in my face, I'm able mm-hmm. to get him in his weakest yeah. part. Yeah. And I ran out of the house naked with blood all over me and ran back to Spider's car. He would always set set us up in these situations so that our loyalty was to him because he would quote unquote mm-hmm. save us. Yeah, And we always felt like he was watching us. And so I don't know if I came in contact with somebody who truly wanted to kill me or if that is a setup i don't know we and, and what's happening with with the other girls in the house while he is attempting to kill you i mean is there any chance that someone else helping you or are they no. just as scared as you are there 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 is a loyalty that is really hard to explain to the average person who's never been mm-hmm. in this situation mm-hmm. and um you know, we're willing to go to jail for him. I went to jail twice. You're you're willing to do things you would never normally do. And that's because even though he did beat my ass, he wouldn't have to beat my ass for me to understand that when one of the girls ran away and she opened her door, she ran back to her house, he was sitting in there waiting for her. That's crazy. You know, you describe him um, as you know, that sort of pimp look that people would see on TV with, with chains on and gold and jewelry. But you've also described that really the, the, the chains were on you, but that they were invisible. And I don't think people really understand how an invisible chain prevents you from escaping. You know, you, you've said that there's this ridiculous loyalty that somehow is created because of all of the abuse and you know i think people can sort of understand that effect because that's what happens sometimes when people are kidnapped but explain the invisible chains because things happen to you and happen to others where you learn by fear you learn by well i don't want that to happen to me sometimes the not knowing from the threats is worse than if it already happened. It's the fear of the unknown. So like when one of the girls went to um, a client's house and used his phone to have somebody come pick her up, the client called and said, you know, let's just call her Sarah. Why did Sarah leave? And they're like, Shiva was like, Sarah shouldn't have left. Well, Spider went and found Sarah at her house, beat her dad almost to death and brought Sarah back. Just like that. So when you're seeing things like that or things happen to me where all of a sudden he snaps on me and starts strangling me, accusing me of stealing money, stealing money to do what with? You knew yeah. everything I had. And it, and it's just those reminders of just so you know, I have control over you. And not only that, but we are humans and, and we adapt. And when you begin to realize that as long as my family is not dead, I can take this and I will die doing this as long as nothing happens to my family. You're protecting them. Yes. I, I think it's really hard for people to to really comprehend everything that you're saying, but yet in their own communities, in their own towns, in their own cities, sex trafficking is happening even though they don't believe it. So 
in your experience, tell our listeners, where is sex trafficking happening? Well, it happens everywhere. It happens in all neighborhoods. I was literally trafficked in a neighborhood where the school bus came to pick up the kids. The kids played outside on the weekends. Kids are going door to door, selling candy bars for their sports teams. They're, we were not kept on the quote unquote other side of the tracks. We were living in plain sight in suburbia. And that's what's hard for people to understand because they'll say things to me like, well, you don't look like a victim. And I will respond with, what does a victim look like? Exactly. I didn't always have my shit together. I had to take a huge journey of self-discovery all over again after what happened to me. And it's, it's trying to help understand. I think people have a very difficult time when I tell them my story, because what happens is, is I seem so like, well, it's not supposed to happen to people like you because once they acknowledge that it happens to somebody like me, then they have to acknowledge that it could happen to somebody like them. Or or someone they know, exactly. Yes. And so it scares them because they're like, oh my God, you're not, you mean you didn't grow up in a foster home or you didn't have a broken home and you didn't, what do you mean you grew up in this great life and it still happened to you? And that is really, really hard for people to grasp. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, America's Most Wanted, which was headquartered in Washington, D.C. And I remember there was news of, um... Uh, high school girls being sex trafficked in Herndon, Virginia, which was like 15, 20, 30 minutes outside of DC. And there were pimps who were getting these girls, recruiting them, and they were going after school, meeting clients, you know, turning over all the money. And then they were home by six o'clock with their parents having dinner, doing homework. And people couldn't believe it. This is like a nice suburb where government workers work, law enforcement lives out there. It really is happening everywhere, isn't it? Well, yes, we were less than two miles from the sheriff's department where we were being kept. Unbelievable. It's hard because when you have something hidden in plain sight, you don't even know what you're looking for. And that's why you're able to see it happening in front of you without you recognizing this is not right. This isn't normal. When the FBI went back to ask the neighbors, like, well, did you notice anything? They were like, well, we felt like it was weird that it was this, you know, this guy that looked like a celebrity basketball player and athlete mm-hmm. or something with all these girls. But, yeah. you know, yeah. again, TV makes it okay. TV makes the celebrity with a bunch of girls going in and out of the house. It makes it seem like it's normal. Yeah. Yeah. And when they have shows with the word pimp in it, like pimp my ride, it, it, it normalizes it in society. Of course. When I've heard you speak before, uh, you've talked about how, You've gone all over the country, you were moved all over the place for the most part. And just occasionally you were, I think you said you were in, in the Caribbean. So you started in California and you went everywhere. Tell, tell me how you were rescued. And, um, you know, the America's Most Wanted reenactment you, you told us about, you were with a woman named Karen. Tell us about how you were rescued and what happened to her and yourself. I was made to call my mom and always tell her everything was fine. And when you're calling her maybe once a month, but then it started getting less and less. And so fast forward to when he sold us to some drug lords in the Bahamas, we were chained to a boat and kept out there for them and out in the middle of the ocean. And, oh, I don't even know. I don't even know, but they were, were, they were not nice. But then you went back to spider eventually. Yes. So they, he sold like, he 
gave all of us to these, some sort of traffickers that were in the ocean on a huge boat. And we were kept there for at least a few days for them to do whatever they wanted. And they, they were not nice. They were not nice at all. And then when they were done with all of us girls, um, they brought us back and then we were with Spider. And during that time, my mom had called and said, if I don't see you, I am calling the police. So Spider looked at me as I was on the phone with my mom and said, tell her that you can, you'll, you'll come and see her. So about two weeks later, I go home and I, I mean, I'm just, I'm crying all the time. I stayed in my room and I cried and cried and my parents would try to talk to me and my brother would try and talk to me. And all I would say is I really just want to quit my job. And my mom would be like, why can't you just quit your job? Tell them you're not, you're done. And you know, unfortunately, that's not how it was. And I remember my mom. You're in the fashion industry at this point. No. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And but they could see I had changed completely from what I used to look like to what I look like now. I've been seasoned. I'm hardened. And um, I go to dinner, and I remember sitting at dinner with my family and looking at my dad and wanting to scream, "Please help me! Please help me! I'm in trouble." But knowing that, you know, I just couldn't. There was no way we would all be dead if I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent two days with them, and then Shiva came and picked me back up, and I, I went back, and then that's that's when we were told that the girl, Karen, and I would be she would be being sold to some traffickers in France, I think it was Paris, yes, and I would be sold to traffickers in Japan. And so we were taken to New York by Shiva because that's where we would be flying out from. That was your, that was your last stop. I mean, I I knew we would be dead after that. During the time, Spider was in New York, but staying at a different hotel because he never stayed at the same hotel as us. We get a phone call. Shiva gets a phone call saying, you know, bring Karen and, and, uh, you know, my name at the time, Paige, and come to the hotel. So we go to the hotel And Karen tells him, I want to go home. I don't want to do this anymore. He gives her the worst beating I had ever seen him give somebody. Right in front of you. Oh, absolutely. And we we are not allowed to show emotion. And she was screaming, Daddy, please stop. Daddy, please stop. And he was literally swinging her around the room like a rag doll. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And he says, Paige, get the door. So I go to get the door. And it's security at the Marriott saying, we've had a noise complaint. Can you please turn down the TV? And I said, yes, sir. And I shut the door. He then, Spider then tells uh, Shiva and I to get Karen cleaned up and we are to go back to our hotel. So we get her cleaned up. We go back to the hotel. Karen um, is really badly injured in one of her eyes. It's so swollen. I can't even see her eye anymore. And she's kind of passing out uh, back and forth and Shiva has to go to an appointment so I'm taking care of Karen and she's telling me please don't let me die and I told her I promise I won't let anything happen to you but if I don't go to my appointment that Spider has for me he will know something's wrong so how are we going to save you and I still do what I need to do 
And so we come up with somebody that we had mutually met in New York that was a client and we call him and I tell Karen, I have to leave and get in the, the, the car, the cab that's taking me to the hair appointment that Spider has for me from one of his people in Brooklyn. Because if I don't, Spider will know something's going on. So I leave Karen there by herself and I get in the cab and I call this person and I say, listen, our boss beat Karen up. She needs help. She's in this room. Please go help her. And he's like, your boss? He goes, I thought you girls were here on spring break. And I was just like, listen, please, I just need you to help her. So he's like, well, who do I call it? I said, whatever you do, don't call the cops. I said, yeah. just go to the room and get her help. So yeah. as I get to my, my hair appointment, he calls again. So I have to this person knows spider. I'm at someone's house. So I have to go into the bathroom and I'm like, what are you not understanding? He goes, I don't know who to call. And I finally said, call my parents, but do not call the cops. So un unbeknownst to me, he had went to the police after the first phone call. And when he called again and I was irritated with him, it was because the cops were like, what are you talking about? Girls yeah. are kidnapped, but they're not physically being held. Mm -hmm. The invisible chains. Yes. Where were you at this point? Did you get back to that hotel where this guy was going to help Karen? No. So at that point, I'm thinking he's going to call my parents and he's going to help Karen and I'm just going to keep living my life. I was not trying to leave the game. He was going to kill me and everyone else. So I had to act like I didn't have anything to do with that. Well, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, this girl's doing my hair and there's a knock at the door. And I'm like, he's found me. He's here to kill me. He knows what I did. I just know it. So here I am taking what I think is going to be my last breath and starting to pray um, and hearing creaks as someone's walking back into where I was, the girl was doing my hair. And I look up and it's still her. And she says, there's some men at the door that want to see you. So and this is in another hotel. No, this was at someone's at her house. Spider oh, had me going okay. to somebody's house in Brooklyn. So I don't know this person. This is Spider's connection. Yeah. And so I walk to the front and I see four men in suits and they pull out their badges and they say, are you Natasha Bradshaw? And I noticed one of the men was on the phone and, and he would listen and then he'd ask me a question. And I was like, no, that is not me. They said, you need to come with us. And I'm screaming, I am not going with you. And they said, listen, you have to come with us. So how long had it been since you heard your real name? Oh, I mean, almost a year because I was kidnapped almost a year. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, to be even called Natasha. I mean, that wasn't that was not what I was ever called. You know, I was like, I'm not this person. And I and I truly believed I'm not that person. And and as I'm screaming, please don't take me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill my family. It was my mom on the phone with one of the detectives who could hear me screaming that as they were putting me in the car. I was screaming, please don't take me. He's going to kill me and he's going to kill my family. And uh, that's how we were, we were rescued. It's amazing. So at that point, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you've been rescued. And what happened to spider at what point did you think that i mean i know you're just trying to save your life but at some point in your healing process and that's when i met you through america's most wanted there was a manhunt for this guy 
I don't even know what his real name is, but there was a manhunt. What what were you thinking um, were the chances of him actually getting caught? I was asked that a lot when, when I had decided to do America's Most Wanted, because at first I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And that really is the truth. I, I did not know once they caught him, what would come next? I didn't, I had only known life for so long of him not being caught and him being a fugitive that I, I had, I had to find my closure a long time ago because I was really trying to survive. I had a very difficult time after I was rescued trying to, to survive life and, and made some very poor decisions along the way. So to think that all of a sudden now I have the opportunity to know that he's going to pay for what he did. I didn't even think it was possible. I couldn't even imagine it. What sentence did he get initially when he was first caught? Well, because the other, because of the fear and they could not get any other girls to testify but me, and there really was nothing behind it. uh, He was sentenced to five years and spent two and a half years. Five years for all that. That's just, it's so hard to believe. And I know that, you know, some people would 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 have to would just crawl under a rock and never be seen again <laughs> if they had gone through, you know, a fraction of, of what you went through. But I know by fate and circumstance that as you were becoming more powerful and, and thriving and sending your message of hope that he, he was actually found again and prosecuted again. But this time he got what he deserved. He got 174 years because of you. Why do you think victim impact statements are important? They're important because they're an opportunity that you don't even really get when you're testifying. Because as a as a victim of a crime, uh, the defense has every right to cross-examine you and to say terrible things about you. And, and really, you don't get a, an opportunity to directly address uh, the person who harmed you. And uh, it's amazing that... Um, I, you know, you get an opportunity not only to say how you feel and to address that person, but, um, you feel power. You, Mm -hmm. you, you feel like even though whatever I'm going to say is not going to affect him because I know it's not, he's a monster, but he still has to hear it. And, and it's like, you thought I would be so scared to continually come after you but I didn't stop for 17 years. I continued to speak out and to say this person and show your picture at every conference. I Mm -hmm. went, I showed your picture and said, you are guilty. And he had to hear that. And what was interesting is one of the, when all of us victims got to see each other after he was found guilty, because we were kept separated. One of them said, because she was trafficked during the time that he was on America's Most Wanted and I kept talking about him. She said that he would continually say that Natasha is a thorn in my side. America's Most Wanted was, is, you know, was watched by so many different people and, 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 people in prison. And after America's Most Wanted, as you know, I worked for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And we used to talk a lot about how runaways were particularly at risk um, of, of being lured, befriended, um, being tricked when they were you know, arriving at, at bus depots, at train stations, airports, because the groomers were there and, and they wanted 
lure the child into into the game, into that life. What should people who work in those industries look for if they think someone is a trafficker or a trafficking victim? And, and what should they do? Well, unfortunately, traffickers are smart and they're, they're not going to um, do anything that makes them identifiable in those ways. So they're reaching out to those who look friendly and trustworthy, getting college boys to befriend these girls. They're, they're doing a lot of the Romeo stuff, which is, I'm just dating you. I love you. If you, if, if you do this for me, I'll love you even more. You'll be proving your love to me. And, and really it's, yes, they are more vulnerable and susceptible to being trafficked, mm-hmm. but they are just as susceptible and vulnerable as the children that are living in our neighborhoods. The thing with trafficking is that they can be in your neighborhood and you would not be like, I'm calling the police. That looks weird. They look like you and I, and they're going to exploit the weakness, the vulnerability in these children. So if you have all American Sarah over here, um, who just has really strict parents, you will exploit the fact that she just wants some freedom. So when you do trainings for law enforcement and you speak to to people or people hear your message who work in in you know the airline industry, what types of things should they be looking for in order to try to help someone who might be like you being flown around the country and assaulted every day and exploited? It's, it's really difficult to identify that because I remember when I was at the airport with the girls and this mom and this girl were staring at us and, and she goes, you know, the little, the little girl goes, you know, are, are you guys models? And of course we're saying yes. And, you know, just that her mom's like, she wants to be like you guys one day. Well, hmm. you know, she only knew. Right, right. The thing about trafficking is it's not just your your pimp, your trafficker that's happening. This is every day in this world by politicians, by celebrities, by CEOs, and by your regular, you know, folk in your town. It's not over there. It's not in that neighborhood, in yeah. those places, to those people. It is here. It is everywhere. And in less it starts at the top, it will always be. For people listening today, they're hearing someone talk about the worst possible things that could ever happen to them. Yet you have completely, in my opinion, transformed from a victim to being a survivor. So what what do you tell someone who might be in this situation or knows of someone in this situation who's listening right now and 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 could be in that world if that was possible for you to talk to them and whisper right into their ear what would you say to them that there is hope that they are worth saving that there is nothing that they have done that would make them not worth saving and there is nothing that they've done that would make a new life for them not possible that everything that they think of themselves is not true. Whatever they've been told is not true. And that there there is a way out and there are people who care and there are people that that have the resources to help. Mm -hmm. And 
to, to really understand that this is not an overnight process. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be better. And that's what happens is people think like, oh, you're not trafficking anymore. Okay, great. Yay. Let's live life. It doesn't work that way. Now, now you have to deal with the damage that's been done. And you've been so broken that mm-hmm. you don't even know how to pick up the pieces because there's too many pieces to pick up. So every day you can only work on a few. And that even has to be once you acknowledge that you've been a victim. And it took me many years to figure out I was a victim of a crime mm-hmm. and to even acknowledge it. So during that time, I was very lost. I acted out. I, I did things that I shouldn't have. And at the end of the day, I found myself. No matter what I had to do, I found myself. So I have to give myself some grace and compassion that even though those choices have come back to haunt me, no matter what I do, uh, no matter how successful I am in my life now, I have to forgive myself, but also know that without those choices, I would not have found my worth. I needed to be in my personal depths of despair to make the most important choice that anybody can make, and that is to live or die. And I chose to live. Thank God you did. For people listening today, I just want to note that in the show notes section, wherever you're hearing this podcast, there are some resources that Natasha has provided to help people on their journey out of this life or to educate people more about the effects of sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, and human trafficking. Uh, One of the things that I'm always so amazed by about you, Natasha, and I talk to my, my wife and friends about this is is how incredible your life is now. Tell us about your your life. You referenced your husband. Tell us about the, the Nat- Natasha Herzig life today. Well, my life today is is blessed beyond what I could even even say in prayers or words. Um, I've been married for 12 and a half years to uh, a wonderful man. Uh, who is in federal law enforcement. We have a beautiful 12-year-old daughter, and I own two very successful businesses. I'm also a commissioner commissioner where we live. I sit on uh, both law, law enforcement agency uh, boards uh, where I reside now, and I am able to not only do all that, but I'm able to also go and speak and help those who deal with trafficking and uh, with victims and assist that. And, you know, when I first started building my businesses, I thought this will be a great escape from my life as advocate and trainer and consultant. And what was so crazy is that my businesses that have nothing to do with any of that, they just gave me a larger platform to be an even louder voice. And so it's it's amazing how you think it's going to go a certain way and it was going to be my escape, but really all it did is just help me speak louder and 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 be heard. Well, you do have an incredibly loud voice and you're you're definitely um probably the bravest person I know. 
and your story is one of hope and about what surviving and fighting back fighting back really 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 looks like and i've met so many people over the last 25 years who have had so much harm done to them both i've met them through america's most wanted the national center for missing and exploited children so to to hear about your journey and your message of hope it's it's really inspiring to me it's it's inspiring to everyone who's listening here today so i want to say thank you uh, i hope you'll come back on the show sometime to talk about this subject because it's not going away that easily it's happening everywhere and it needs you know a loud voice and you have that loud voice and need ad- and it needs more advocates like you making a difference so thank you so much natasha thank you for having me And thank you so much for joining me. Please download and listen to the next episode of Making the Case, Crimes Against Kids, when we'll learn from another insider and hear about more incredible cases. And please visit SOS360.com to learn how to protect your organization and make it safer for children. Remember, safety begins from the inside out. Until next time, bye-bye.